Father, these words are words of life. You produced life within us by the work of your Holy Spirit when he washed us in the waters of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's the only reason how and why we can stand before your word this day, witnessed by your spirit, and hear the truth of it, and to take it in and to receive it as the word of God and graft it into our souls, and then to act upon it and to do the very will of God that Jesus himself even says and answers a man who says, who is my neighbor? Lord, we thank you for this gift of the Spirit of God. And it was all caused by the very atoning work and death of Christ himself, bringing regeneration to those whom he has called. Lord, we just thank you and praise you this day because of this work you have done in each one of us. And that, O Lord, we now hear the message from the preacher. Alistair Begg just said recently, I heard him and I quote him, he says, we will never see revivalists unless men start to preach. And therefore, let us hear your word with a new fervency, a new love, a new capacity, O Lord, by the Spirit to do the work of God in this world and in this church to love one another for the grace and the power of God's glory. Amen. finish off where we left, continuing verse 26, which I didn't get to last week, and we're going to speak on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 as well. Galatians 5, verse 26 to chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. Last week, if you were here, we were talking about the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and how these are contrary one to the other and you cannot do the things that you would. And then we had the reference to the works of the flesh. We talked about that grinding action that comes from the sinful part of our composition. But thankfully that's trumped by the second, which is not something that's grinded out of us, but rather it's something that's produced in us And I was giving the farmers a lesson last week on how a a tree could have multiple fruits on it. And we had an example last week of a tree, one tree that had 40 fruits on it. It's a real tree, but it's processed, of course. The, The analogy is basically this, that we each all have the Holy Spirit of God. Those that are born again, you have to be adopted into the family of God to receive the Spirit. Not everyone is born with the new nature, with the Holy Spirit, not at all. It has to come at a point in time when repentance is created and a desire to seek the Lord and to come by faith to Him. And we praise the Lord for the gift that He gives us of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And once that happens, the Bible says, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the indwelling agent within us that generates fruit. One spirit, one tree, if you will, with multiple fruits. And that fruit, the fruits were mentioned there. I said fruit, and you could say in 
parentheses after that, the S, fruits, because the Spirit does produce fruits, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and against such there is no law. In other words, it's unleashed, it's unlimited, it's unbounded. So what you were before is not what you are now. And what you are now, you couldn't have been before because you didn't have the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit would not have been evident in you. But when you're born again, you have the fruit of the Spirit as the virtues of the Holy Spirit to be able to bear witness to the new life that you have in Christ and the joy that accompanies in all of these wonderful benefits, you could say, that come as a package plan with the conversion experience that God causes us to have in the new birth. So after the reference to the Spirit of God and the fruit that comes from Him, it seems a little daunting that in verse 26 it says, let no one become conceited. Let no one become conceited. Well, we would just, Paul was just telling us about having the fruit of the Spirit, that gentleness, that meekness, that lowliness, sort of a spirit. And yet at the same time, let us, and it almost sounds like it's, in the Greek it would be progressive. It's not as if he's saying, those of you that are conceited, No, it's sort of a warning. Let us not become. That word become needs to be emphasized. It's like don't allow that sinful nature to mature. Don't give it reason to to develop and create things that are contrary to the fruit of the Spirit. So it's possible that one could become conceited. And you know, just like so many other things in the Bible, when something fresh comes... It's new, it's invigorating, it's regenerating. Oftentimes there's a fall shortly after that. You know, after David had taken uh, Goliath's head off in victory, sometime later he's willing to join hands with the Philistines when he was fighting against a champion of Philistines. When we have the children of Israel that just crossed the Red Sea, they're singing the song of triumph, on the other side of the Red Sea with their enemies destroyed under the waters. They're rejoicing. And then God rains down manna from heaven, angels food to feed them for the journey through the wilderness. Then the next chapter 17 said, and there was no water and they began to quarrel. They were chiding with Moses almost immediately after their deliverance for their trip to go to the promised land. We have when the tabernacle was constructed and in the earliest days after it was set in place and the operations of the the, the uh, functions of ministry were beginning, one of the first things that we have reference to in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu bring strange fire and God strikes them both dead. In the early church, Ananias and Sapphira, it, there's a, there's a revival that has broken out. The people of God, they want to share their goods in a communal fashion. They're giving sacrificially for the benefit of others so that there could be an equality. But Ananias and Sapphira lied against the Holy Ghost and the Lord struck each of them dead. This is at the outset. In the next chapter, we have the murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because of the ministry that was being distributed they thought was unfair. 
So it's not uncommon that we can find throughout history, going back in the B.C. period to the early church, into our period, into the book of Galatians, after such freshness and after the new birth and after the regenerating power of the Spirit and the unity of the body of believers together, things like this can break out. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You know, a, a, a conceited person is a braggart. Um, he thinks he's something when he is nothing. He's, in a way, a windbag, you could say. He he's, thinks he's a know-it-all and wants to set the record straight and wants to try to set everybody straight. That's something that should not be mocking a Christian. You know, we're entering in here when we get to verse 26 and following, which we will in verse 1, 2, right down to, I believe, about a chapter, about verse 11, we have, uh, 10 rather, we have a bunch of hortatory remarks, or you could say proverbial sayings of individual, for individual encouragement and in how to live the life. You could say the first five chapters, like the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters says, here's the doctrine. Now, get on board and walk it. Live it. That's always the case. Good doctrine, but then good behavior that follows it. It's got to be based on the good doctrine, the right doctrine, the correct doctrine. Now God's exhortation is for us to live the life that He has placed within us. The conceited person, though, is a braggart. He's smarter, he's stronger, or she is or prettier, and on and on the list could go. I'm better than someone else, therefore I can correct somebody. We had much of this kind of language in our Sunday school this morning, and it's no, no coincidence. I'm sure the Lord had a reason for it, but what our brother Pat was teaching is somewhat similar to what I'm going to be talking about in a related way. And I think maybe the Lord has a reason for that, and I'm sure He does, and I hope that I can come away with this with some of the exhortations and some of the words that we will read that will stir my heart up that I would say, yes, Lord, thank you for speaking to me this morning. A conceited person usually is a windbag. They think they are something when they are nothing. They're the know-it-alls. It's the opposite of being meek, and that's what we're going to get into in in the next chapter. In the book of James, we have a similar type of a warning about the wisdom that comes from above. That's pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. But then, in contrast to that, you have but the wisdom that is from below, that descends, uh, that, that is from below, is earthly, sensual, and devilish. And says, and it says that we're envying and strife is, there is every evil work. And interestingly, right here in verse 26, it says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So it's not just the individual who's the one that's targeted here. It's how that individual, along with the others who are being provoked, can create an envious spirit in the body. Let's look at something here. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another. Oh, that should be provoking one another. Envying one another, that was my bad. So how does this happen? That one conceited person 
and that's who Paul is concentrating on. One bad apple can spoil the bunch. You see the apple right here? These are all healthy. These all look great, right, Todd? What kind of apples are those? Strange apples? Yeah, I've never heard of that brand. Uh, Well, anyway, this bad apple, how it works, maybe he could explain that to you, but we all know that if you have a bad apple in the bunch, the whole bunch is going to get spoiled. And that's the same principle in the church, local church particularly, you know. It says that uh, if any root of bitterness spring up, it will defile many. It only takes one root of bitterness. Someone that has a bad spirit, a toxic person, can create a lot of problems in a church. And I'm not saying this because I think we have a problem you know, that I know of, or that we, well, I'm sure we do in some ways. I'm a problem. You're a problem. We're all problem people. <laughs> uh, but how we can abate those problems, how we can attack them, how we can judge ourselves so that I'm not the one that's going to create this strange, bitter, envious spirit that can evolve and develop within the local church. <clears throat> One of the ways that that can be done, I was on a, in a kind of an unofficial basketball league that ended when COVID ended, but uh, we had one guy in the gym that was, played with us. He was an African, African guy. I loved him to death. But he was such an excitable guy that he was always shouting when he scored a point or when he didn't like what happened. He, he just was very, very uh, vocal. And his voice carried in the gym so powerfully that the people in the offices were complaining about the shouts that were going on. And we knew that he was the one, and we literally did put duct tape on his mouth. Now, that's not him, obviously. He's not African-American, but that worked, and he got the point. And sometimes people need almost a dramatic expression like that to get them to say, maybe I need to guard my lips. Maybe I need to stop talking. You know, the Bible says, he that has knowledge spears his word. So the conceited person can can come to maybe a conclusion like, maybe I better stop talking. Maybe I should let others talk. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. We need to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Now, in the sixth chapter here, verse 1, It says, Dear brothers and sisters. That's the New International Version. The New Living Translation says, Dear brothers and sisters. By the way, the Greek has the word brother first in the the translation. Some translations don't have the word brother first. It says, If anyone's taken in a fault, you which are spiritual or the brothers, uh, take care of this matter. Um, And the New American Standard Bible, I'm not sure which edition it is, also says brothers and it has sisters, though, in italics. If you happen to have a Bible and in your translation it has words that are in italics, I hope you know what that means. What the translator is trying to tell the reader is that these are not the words uh, in, in the Greek itself. The underlying Greek does not have this word, but the translator is providing it for the intelligence of the reader so that he would understand what the author meant. Though the author didn't use sisters, he was not relegating this ministry that he's going to talk about to just brothers. 
the ESV has just brothers, and maybe it is something that's more uh, intended for males because of leadership, is we find, is always in the male gender. When it comes to the local church with your elders and deacons, or oh, there's room for female deacons, we understand that called deaconesses. So it seems to me, though, because Paul has just in the chapter before been talking about the flesh and the spirit, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, he's addressing them as spiritual people now. Every one of them are now children of God. All of them are able to be able to cry with the indwelling spirit, Abba, Father. So therefore, when he comes to the sixth chapter and he's saying in this male gender, but maybe implying, because sometimes the word brothers or brethren has a broader context than just one gender. It's a gender-inclusive word. It's referring to the brotherhood, meaning the, the congregation at large, including brothers and sisters. And I want to encourage both sides, in a way, that I think sisters as well should be and could be involved in helping in ministry activities with trying to rescue a person that has had a fall. We'll talk about that in a second. So when Paul says... Those that are spiritual. Uh, if any man be taken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. So he's referring to them as spiritual people. Uh, as you see in verse 1. Brother, brothers, if anyone is caught by any transgression, you who are spiritual. It's not saying you of the uh, in the set, the subset within the set, you particular ones who are in the body of Galatian church, you know, he's saying that you as a group are spiritual. And you have the potential, therefore, to be able to minister to to others. You who are spiritual should. So the spiritual here, I think in this context, is referring to all Christians... Yet in other contexts, like in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says about the Corinthians, and one, one of the ways in which they've been identified is the carnal Corinthians, right? And he says in chapter 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So even though they were spiritual, that is their, you could say their classification, their practice was such and their immaturity was such that Paul says, I can't speak to you maturely. Like the Hebrew author says, when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you. When for the time you ought to be able to have food, meat, now you still need milk, your babes. We who are spiritual can become babyish. We can become Connolly minded we can be immature spiritually and still be categorized of course the category is spiritual but the practice can be connell and that's something that we have to all evaluate ourselves in that way am i spiritual or am i connell what is my tendency am i one that has taken advantage of the truth of the spirit dwelling in me and the fruit that it produces in me so that it can be used in the purposes of God. So brothers, if anyone is caught, 
brothers, brothers and sisters. And it could be. I'm not going to be dogmatic that the author, under inspiration of the Spirit, is not referring to the male gender here. There are examples, of course, in the Scriptures where elders are to take care of certain matters that may not be uh, the capacity of, a, of, of a other, uh, another believer to be able to handle. Just like in the Old Testament, the lepers, when they were put outside the camp, it was the priest's duty to go out and to visit the leper. Because the leper could be contagious, but the spiritual, so to speak, priest was able to go and do the visitation and then make a determination based on different guidelines he was given as to how to evaluate the case. So I think sometimes certain cases have to be relegated to those that are more mature. And you would expect that the eldership, the deacons, that they would be the more mature ones who could handle certain cases that might be beyond their capacity to handle. So it says here, and this is again another reminder that we cannot ever think that we're in safe in the safety zone, so to speak. As it tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Those who think they're the strongest as believers in Christ, and maybe you can look at a brother or sister and say they're strong, but I hope that they themselves realize I've got to be mindful every day. I've got to watch myself. I've got to be careful. I can't think that I'm um, impeccable. I have the potential to fall. And him that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. So here we have an example of a fallen believer. If anyone is caught in a transgression, I think there's significance to the use of the word caught. The New Living Translation says, if a believer is overcome by some sin, the uh, New American Standard says caught. The New International Version says caught. Caught in a sin, NIV. Uh, caught in a transgression, which we had in the English Standard Version. And then the New American Standard Bible says, caught in any wrongdoing. But let's first talk about the word caught. Help me, Michael. Next slide. There we go. Um, what you see here is a net, obviously, and a bird's caught in a net. They, they, they have these kinds of things. I remember when I was first saved, I worked at a Christian youth, uh, Christian youth camp, yes, for the whole summer, and one brother had brought up uh, a net to catch birds in. Because in the book of Proverbs, it talks about being caught in a net. And the thing is, if you were looking at the net, if you weren't aware of it, you wouldn't even notice that it was there. It was made of such fine, like silky material that was almost invisible. So much so that a bird wouldn't even be able to detect it. And it was probably like maybe a little higher than this and maybe from here to the door possibly in its height and width. And he had like poles on the other end and he stuck it up there. And we kept seeing birds flying into it. They didn't even realize what they were heading for but they were suddenly caught in it. We had one time, I don't know if my, my, my wife would remember this, but we came home from a Bible conference and we noticed that our front uh, window, what kind of window was it called? A what? A picture window, a picture window thank you. Uh, 
there was a big hole in the window uh, on, the, on the pane on the outside. It was a double-paned window. And I th- we, we couldn't figure it out. And we happened to come home with someone that was a, uh, a police officer on the side. And so he started doing some work on the window. And couldn't figure out what had happened. But then after a while, so a couple days later, I was going out the front door and I just happened to look down and there was a pheasant that was dead lying there beneath the window. And I said to myself, what would have caused that to have happened? Well, on the inside we had a table. You know how you have the false fruit there, that the fruity looking stuff or food items? Apparently the bird could see with its eye, not realizing the window was there, went dashing through thinking it's going to get that food and end up busting its head, cracked his head, and died right there, broke his neck. That's what I think it means when it says caught here in a transgression. Sort of the difference between, maybe I could use the example of Peter and David. Peter, remember, he was uh, all out for the Lord. Lord, I'm going to die with you follow you to the very end. And the Lord had to tell him before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny me thrice. He still didn't get that part, of course. And here he was, right, you got to give him some credit, right? There are 12 apostles and Peter's the one that goes right to the very closest possible point where Jesus was being interrogated and uh, there happened to be a door that was wide open, uh, not wide open, slightly opened. And, uh, Jesus, I mean, Peter was being enticed by these maidens about, you, you belong to Jesus, don't you? You're, you're one of his disciples. And yes, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I'm one of them. Well, your speech betrays you. Yeah. He gave in three times so that what he could deny the Lord. To me, that's an example of an incidental. He was caught unexpectedly. I mean, he went in there courageously to be as close to Jesus as possible and identify with him, but then he was easily baited and he fell into it. He was caught in a wrongdoing, caught in a transgression, saying, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, three times. And as soon as he had said that, the cock that had crowed already once crowed again, and then not just those two things happened, but... It says the Lord turned to Peter. And as soon as Peter's eyes met the Lord, what does it say? He went out and wept bitterly. Immediate conviction and guilt set in. On the other hand, King David, the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, no, First Kings, chapter 11. David, uh, it's a time of war when kings go out to battle. David decided to stay home. And you know he was up on his roof and he looked over and he saw a naked woman and he was enticed. He saw her. He sent messengers after her, had a conversation with her. My point is that it was a premeditated act. David's guilt was far greater than just a matter of being caught in a sin. He had plenty of opportunity to be able to stop the progression. When a man is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, then death occurs. And that's what happened. The conscience was smitten. 
eliminated. There was a brother that was interviewed one time, I think it was on James Dobson's show, I remember listening to him. He, he had been a marriage counselor, and he was counseling you know, couples that were having difficulties. Sometimes he's with a man, sometimes he's with a woman, sometimes he's with both of them. Well, he somehow got interested and vice versa with a woman who was having this broken marriage going on in their life. And he ended up falling into immorality with her. And I don't, I don't know how far if it went, if they got married or whatever, but the fact that he fell into immorality. And James Dobson said to him, didn't the bells go off in your head when this was transpiring? He said, I cut the wires to them. And that's what a believer can do, cut the wires when the conviction sets in. It obviously is changing my desire for what is right. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. In one case, you could say the, the flesh is, is, is sort of like putting up a stopper for the spirit's ac- actions to be able to draw me and convict me and cause me to think about what I'm doing and to put the brakes on and say no, like when Joseph took off or when, uh, yeah, Joseph, when he left uh, Pharaoh's wife, uh, was it the Pharaoh's wife? Potiphar's wife, right. He, uh, she obviously did everything in her power to try to embrace him. He was a handsome man. He was available. And yet he left his garment with hair and took off. Well, I think in one case with David, it's, it's a, a blowout with, uh, no, excuse me, with Peter, it's more, he was caught off guard it was like a blowout. It happened suddenly. Whereas with David, it was more like a slow leak. That's one way one could describe how, the difference between uh, how backsliding occurs. Backsliding is not like a blowout in the car, but it's like a slow leak, and eventually it becomes flat like a blowout would. But Peter's, it was like a sudden thing that took him off guard. It caught him in a snare. Whereas David, there was premeditation involved there. There's indications that he was missing his calling. It says, at the time when kings go out to battle, he should have been on the battlefield with his men, but he chose to stay home. He made himself more vulnerable to his environment, and that was how the devil had plotted it for him to fall into that kind of sin. If anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You know, that word restore is the same word that's used when Jesus met his disciples, Peter and John, namely, who were, what were they doing when he met them? Do you remember? They were what? Huh? Mending the nets. That word mending is the same Greek word here for restoration. That's the goal that someone wants to bring to somebody who's fallen, caught in a snare, to bring them back, it's to try to mend that net that's been broken. And how does one do that? How does one restore another one to where they should be spiritually? It says in the book of James 5, 19 and 20, the last two verses of the book of James, you should know this verse, it says, Brethren, if any one of you does stray from the truth... And one turns him back. That's what's going on here. Restoring the brother. One turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner, or I should say 
I want you to think of it as who turns a believer who's sinning from the error of his way. It has to be a believer, I believe, because it's from the error of his way. He, he knew the right way. He has the right way, but he's turned away from the error of his way. And the one who's turning him back will save his soul from death, that is spiritual death. If he was an unbeliever, he would have already been spiritually dead and will cover a multitude of sins. You could say when Noah's two sons went in with a, with a blanket, they went backwards when the dad was drunk and naked and they covered his body up. Well, that's what we do when we aid one another. And this is the point that I really want to kind of hone in on, and that's the last verse here, verse 2 of chapter 6, that says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, what, what makes a belie- believing people different from... A, unbelieving people as groups should be the thing that mocks us the most is the care that we have for one another. If you fall or if you're, if, if you're hurting, as it tells us in Corinthians that we're one body, what happens to you in a sense happens to me. What happens to me should happen to you. And that's not just relegated to the local church. When I hear stories about some of the more celebrity-like pastors or evangelists or TV, TV people that have fallen. And, of course, the media wants to make a big thing of it, wants the world to know, and everybody, aha, see, you're no better than us, or whatever the attitude is behind it. It hurts. It should hurt every one of us because we're all in this together. We do not want to give any occasion of the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. So when one cause create does something in their life, it creates a ripple in the rest of the body of Christ because we're all somewhat affected. Now, we're never going to stop the tide from rolling in that sense, but what can never stop is our understanding of our relationship to one another, that bond, that unity. You know, when the tabernacle boards were set up, there was a bar that went all around and connected every one of them to each other. And that's how it is in the family of God. We are connected together by that one bar, and that's the Spirit of God. He unites us to one another. So here we're exhorted to bear. Who are they that are the bearers? The ones that are spiritual, God's people, the brother, singular possibly, gender singular or brothers and sisters plural on the the genders uh however you want to look at that the point is that we are and maybe this is the one that would indicate that sisters are involved with this as well and should be for sure in some ways no doubt bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of christ this is a unique, unique expression, the law of Christ. Because Paul's been talking about the law, and he's really telling them, those that are under the law, don't you understand that that was our schoolmaster to bring us to what? Christ. And now that we're out from the schoolmaster, you could say the law was our schoolmaster. It brought us under conviction. It showed us our sin. Now it points us to Christ. 
And now when we got to Him, I'm not back under that law. I'm back under the new lawgiver. I'm not going to go back to Moses. I'm under Christ's leadership, under His rule, under His mastery over me. And I do have that desire to say, Lord, I want you to lead me. You're the shepherd of my soul. I want you to guide my life. And I want to live like you. How can we live like Him? Because the Bible says that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Remember in Galatians 2, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Christ lives in me. And that's said of every one of you who are children of God. You are the tabernacle, the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's why Paul could write in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him, that's Christ, who strengthens me. So why and how can I bear someone else's burdens? Because of Christ in me. And with Christ in me, for others I'm fulfilling the law of Christ. Now Christ is considered the great physician, is he not? They said, physician, heal thyself. It says he went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Our brother gave us a great example and a brother over here that was reading about Jesus' tender, loving care and sensitivity to his surroundings. What was going on? The woman that touched the hem of his garment. I was reading in the Gospels how that when Jesus was out in the country, it says multitudes came out in hopes that they might just touch him. Just touch his garment. And Jesus is so sensitive that he replies and responds, Who touched me? What do you mean somebody touched you? Yes, somebody touched me because I felt power, a virtue go out of me. That's the kind of example that we have to enable us to be burdened for one another. This is the complete fulfillment of the law. This is how the law is fulfilled. We had mentioned early in chapter 5, verse 14, that the the answer to being a real law keeper is to love your neighbor as yourself. And here's an example how we love one another. Because we care for one another. So Jesus is the great physician. And you could say that we are nurse practitioners. It sounds a little demeaning, possibly, to you. It shouldn't. But we're really his assistants. He is the great physician and we are working under his abilities and his miracles. So fulfill the law of Christ. Let's look at a passage or two here. This is in 1 Corinthians 9.21. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under what? Christ's law or under the law of Christ, so as to win those who, those not having the law. But this expression here, Paul is describing his own identity now. I'm, I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. That's who I'm under. Who's your authority? Christ. Who are you accountable to? Christ. Who's in you? Christ. That's the one we want to live for and serve and we want His power working in us towards others. The second verse in Romans 15, 1, 3. And again, it follows the chapter where you have the weak and the strong. 
and obviously the weak are weak because they are weak and they need something stronger than themselves to pick them up or someone who can be able to, to, to minister them properly. We who are strong. Now, I don't know how, if you are strong or weak, but either way, uh, those who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. That's how most Christians live to please themselves. Paul even says in Philippians chapter 2.21, for all seek their own things and not the things which are Jesus Christ. That's a pretty sad thing to classify uh, Christians in about 60 or so A.D. in, in Paul saying, all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But there's Timothys out there. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally that supernaturally, naturally care for you. We need to be more Timothy-like than to be more selfish-like. The boastful person is self-conceited, thinks more highly of himself than he ought to think. When we get saved, we're emptying ourselves of self and filling ourselves more and more with Jesus Christ so that we have His compassion and mercy. Each of us, verse 2, is to please his neighbor. Not ourselves, right? To please his neighbor for his good, not the good of the, the good of the neighbor, not the good of the one who's loving his neighbor, to his edification. Just what we were talking about this morning with Brother Pat's ministry. Uh, edification. For even Christ, even Christ, did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ did not please himself. That's why Jesus could say, could say, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just think of that, that we can be a partner with Christ and be able to say to others, hey, let me carry your burden. It's too much for you. It's, it's wearing you out. It's too much. Let me help you. Let me come alongside of you and carry that extra weight that's weighing you down and bringing you down and depressing you. Our brother was trying to talk about encouragement this morning. It's along the same kind of lines. You know, and this all stems from the fact that we are intertwined with one another. You know, American Christians, Americans, because we're Americans have a tendency, and those that have worked in foreign lands or know anything about uh, other nations around the world, uh, Eastern Europe and Europe and beyond that, realize that people don't think as independently as we do in America here. We're all very self-centered people. Unfortunately, that's the culture that, that generates this kind of independency, even from our family members, and even from our church. And it's not an easy barrier to break down. The only thing that's going to break that down is the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the example that I can find in others that don't discriminate against any member of the body of Christ. If they're handicapped, if they're of a different race than me, whatever, we're all washed in the blood of the Lamb and that makes me united to every believer across the globe. And even if their doctrine doesn't agree with my doctrine, I'm still going to love that brother or love that sister because they belong to the same Jesus that I belong to. 
And if I can any way relieve that burden from them, I want to fulfill the law of Christ. He's the burden bearer exclusively. But we as the nurse practitioners to the great physician, we can come alongside of them and apply that medical spiritual help to them that can bring up their spirits. So yes, attention is being drawn to the brothers and sisters. If anyone is caught in a transgression, don't think of yourself only in the sense of watching yourself. And this is important when we minister to one another especially if a strong is trying to help a weak or another brother or sister is trying to help another brother or sister who's in a, in a bad state or going through some difficult times, if you or I come across to them like we're better than them or, oh, I would never do what you do or I'm, I'm not like that kind of a person, you'll fail because you fail to understand that you have the same capacity as they do to fall. If they have fallen, so could you fall. And our brother, I think, was referring to that, how we need to identify with each other in those practical ways. And that's where it comes into play, where Jesus says, in identifying self, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, or gentle and lowly in heart. That's the kind of heart that Jesus has. Gentle and lowly. And if we have that kind of heart, we're going to be the spiritual ones who will be able to minister to those that are in their times of need. And a strong one could become weak at a certain point. I've seen, I've seen some of the, the, the most, what I thought were the most godly brothers that I could have ever met in my lifetime. There was a brother who used to go so out of his way to get people into church to come to gospel meetings so they could hear the gospel that he paid on more occasions than one, he paid a bus company. To, so he hired a bus and he would go around the and gather up people into the bus to bus them over to the church so that they'd hear the gospel. And I could go on and on with cases like that and even someone like him has fallen. Fallen. So let's not think that we can't, not, that we can't fall, but if we do... Let us be aware of the fallen ones so that we can come along practitioners to the great physician so that we can help one another. As the Bible says that we are able to counsel one another. Romans chapter 15. This is not the business of the elders. Please get that out of your heads. It's a, it's a ministry opportunity for all of us to be able to serve Christ as we are under the law of Christ to be able to bear the burdens of others. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the great gospel of your grace and your mercy that has saved sinners such as we. Thank you, Lord, that our Lord Jesus Christ bore the burden of our sins in his own body on the tree. And that, Lord Jesus, you continue now after your finished work 